Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com Ich verstehe nicht. This podcast drink vodka from the bathtub, goes skinny dipping in Volga River in February, and wrestles with bears on its day off. Without Holy Madness, my son would have been a doctor. You're listening to Holy Madness. This is three. Well, you can tell by how I walk, it's Tzvi. And this is Mer Simcha. And you're listening to Holy Madness, episode 11. Yes, you are. Firstly, we are nearing 1,000 downloads. Yes, we are. So that's a lot of you out there who have listened to us a bunch. Thank you for that. If we're talking house cleaning, then we should say also that we are on Facebook. Just search Holy Madness the Show. And to join the discussion, Holy Madness the Discussion Group. And please share this with your friends. Of course, the website is holymadness.podbean.com. And you're probably here because you know at least one of those. Okay, so now on to some meat and potatoes or vegetable soup, like some people in the studio are eating. Our resident vampire. So, I was uh, part of this Facebook discussion, some group, not not the Holy Madness one, and somebody had posted this, one of these crazy, you know, third wave feminist style things about uh, systemic oppression and um, all that, all that's, that stuff. Yeah, that's bad stuff. I had to go to the doctor for that just the other day. <laughs> antibi- I had to do two runs of antibiotics. It was terrible. Should have come to me. I would have prescribed you a fifth of bourbon. I would have cured you in a day. Or a kick in the ass with a frozen boot. <laughs> they both work. So anyways, being me, mm-hmm. I figured why not question, you know, what's going on before jumping in and saying anything. Okay. So I asked the poster, who I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've been in this group together for a while, but... I don't know who they are. Their name is a, you know, the same way my name rather broadcasts that I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh, their name rather broadcasts that they were of Hispanic descent. Interesting. So I asked them, I said, I'm like, I, like what are you, where are you really going with this? Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know them. They don't know me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the response was... Well, I've seen all these different things posted in this group, and a lot of you uh, don't understand that you have this privilege and that, you know, there's this systemic oppression of minorities and, and people actually and literally kill themselves because of this, and you, there's blood on your hands. Your was, hands, personally. Right, my hands. Mm-hmm. And and I was very, look, I was very tempted to be like, uh, I don't live there. And, and if there's any blunt on my hands, it's because I was cooking meat. Or because you're a Zionist nationalist. Right, it's different blood on my hands. But instead, I said, you know, I find it amazing hmm. the parallels between the belief system that you are speaking from the political belief system yeah Mm -hmm. well i mean it's more than politics it's expressed politically but i think it's a it's a belief system well we'll get to that okay but i find that the parallels between that belief system and 
the tenets of Christianity to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because you both believe in a kind of original sin. White privilege. Or just any privilege. But okay. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get technical, it's actually white, cis, het, male privilege. Mm-hmm. Your invisible knapsack, which you didn't know you were walking around with. Mm-hmm. Explains the back pain. Right. <laughs> and you believe, so you believe in this original sin, and the way that you atone for this sin is twofold. Firstly, you do good deeds, mm-hmm. which consist of helping people who need the help. No, 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 that's incorrect. Your good works are futile until you have grace. I didn't get there. The grace comes first, man. Fine, but I, I'm an outsider. I'm looking at it the other way around. And the second thing, which I was about to say, <laughs> is out. one must admit their sins and no, accept that's... upon them the salvation <laughs> of admitting this sin that you are, uh, you know, privileged and, and whatever. And the way that you do this is confession. You have original sin, you have confession, and you have the idea of uh, extirpation of sin through through righteous works i would just bring out that you also have an act of grace which is the wokeness that's the image right and so i said this to to this person and in, in you know slightly different and, and admittedly slightly more acerbic terms <laughs> and and i got an earful back about how you know religious people tend to see religion and I would never, like, see anything religious about this. And I said, well, let's start at the beginning. You are asserting that something called systemic oppression exists. Mm-hmm. Where are you getting that from? Show me where this is from. And the response was... Do you mean, like, the way that Ben Shapiro asked that question? Is it like, well, give me an example? Yeah. Okay. Well, or, or, or show me your study, or give me something more than I feel. Or even a lot of people feel. Okay. And they got the question because the answer was, well, there's Google, use it. I said, no, you're saying something exists as a fact. And you're telling me that if I want to prove that or disprove that, I should go look it up myself. So now let's pretend I did. And what I found didn't tell me anything. So now Hmm. you're asserting the world's a certain way. Tell me how that's the way it is. And the answer, of course, came back. That's the way it is. Right. To which I said, you know, there are other people that have assertions about the way the world is. And when they're questioned, the answer is that's the way it is. And we have a word for that. And it's called belief. Hmm. So this is really a faith-based movement. Even though it, in principle, could be factually verified or falsified this isn't the sort of thing where it has to be a matter of belief it's not like defining your axioms in math well that's kind of the point it but i want that was let me rephrase that that's kind of the point i wanted to make to this person Mm -hmm. is to gently point out that not only is this religious it's literally belief it doesn't have to be religious even but that's the building block of any religion it starts with beliefs God is a belief. I know. Everyone's going to yell at me, God's a fact. Fine. No, I'm just saying. But in the realm of epistemology, it's a belief. I'm just saying it's a funny thing to develop an unverified belief around. Why would you erect a religion around it when you could develop a scientific framework around it? Like, here are the facts. 
Now we are showing that systemic racism exists, or now we are showing that systemic racism does not exist, or whatever the case is. But why isn't that a question of the fact of the matter? Why is it a religion now? So I find that question fascinating because we are literally living in a time where the phrase alternate fact exists. Yes. And what that says to me Hmm. is I don't know at this point what we would call facts anymore. And I'll explain. Okay. Everything we know, Mm -hmm. we fit into a framework. Or several frameworks even. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there are frameworks of frameworks. Right. So, you know... If you can't fit it into a framework, then you aren't going to know it. It's just going to pass you by. It, it doesn't fit. It isn't true. Mm-hmm. That's how people react to it. Irregularities in the orbit of Mercury. They were just written off. Yeah, you're talking about the circles of circles of circles. No, no, not epicycles. I'm talking about planets closer to the sun, like Mercury. You know, they there are irregularities in the orbits because of relativistic effects. Ah, okay. So Einstein paid attention, and that led to the theory of relativity. But before Einstein, everybody wrote it off as rounding errors, even though they were very robust. <laughs> so, but, well, well I'll, I'll illustrate with an example. Here's a good one. Okay. Because it's something that I've I've been watching with Glee for the last You still week. watch Glee? No, no, with Glee. Oh, okay. <laughs> I never watched Glee. How dare you? <laughs> So you take financial markets, right? You take financial markets. No, no, no. I'll 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 do something simple. Okay, okay, sure. And you're told that there are certain fundamental rules to how things work. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, the... What is it? Keynes? Keynes? Who who talked about the, uh, the, the beauty pickers contest. I don't know. He gives an example of the stock market as a beauty pickers contest. But What's the way you, you have pictures of women in the paper and, oh. and you got to pick the most beautiful one. Okay. But the way you win, really, is by figuring out how everyone else is going to vote. Ah, ah, okay, I see. So it's not just what's objectively beautiful, it's mm-hmm. what's objectively beautiful to a lot of subjects. It's not which company is objectively the best, the performance of the companies depends also on, on how, how people, people rate the companies. So as a small example of that, uh, Twitter finally posted uh, positive earnings oh. in the first time in history. Mazel tov. Yeah. And their stock shot up by like almost, <laughs> okay. yeah, it was like 15% or something. Wow. And, and the funny thing is, is if you looked at what they did, it's mm. not that they earned any more money. They just took an axe to all their margins and knocked down their costs enough that there was something left over at the end of the month. Ah. So it says nothing about their future. Oh. They're not growing. It might be bad for their future. Possibly. Mm. But at the, at the very least, this is not, oh, they've turned the corner and now there's positive growth and it's going to be another Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like that. Right. And yet everybody jumps into it because what they see is the headline. The headline says, you know, earnings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. One of the things that, that just happened... Oh, and likewise with the dot-com bubble in America. Every, it was hyped and everybody bought into it. And then when it turned out there There's nothing was underneath. There was nothing there. So that Pop. just happened to the whole market. And no one's really noticed yet mm. because things are still flying uh, in the fallout. How can that happen to the whole market? I'll explain. Okay. This is wonderful. So the market crashed seven years ago, right? And Seven years ago? Well, actually, now it's uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Thank you. 
No, I'll tell you because I, I market crashes occur roughly once every seven years. Okay, which is a beautiful Which argument which is a beautiful argument for the cancellation <laughs> of debts every seven years and letting things reset naturally i'll take that instead of blowing up mm-hmm. but but you're right it's been 10 years it's been a little more than that that said so the way they dealt with the last crash was the government started printing a boat ton of money mm-hmm. and they were using it to after bailing out wall street this is how they bailed them out. Oh. They printed a boat ton of money, and the the Federal Reserve started buying things on its uh, balance sheet. So does that mean the there would have been inflation for all the extra money, except the Federal Reserve is buying stuff to avoid inflation? Well, that's one of the things that kept inflation down. Okay. okay. But now that they can't keep doing this forever. <laughs> right. And they've done it for far longer than they were supposed to. Oh, so there's a Federal Reserve bubble. Yes. Wait. It gets better. Okay. So the way that they were going to do this is they were going to taper off their buying and start raising interest rates and balance this in a way where we'd come out on two feet. That sounds smart. It would have been, except the system of incentives Hmm. does not really care about sustainability or anyone else whose incentives the traders Ah, wall street you're rewarded Mm -hmm. on your own performance right so you can make 50 million dollars one year and blow up the entire world the next and you still have 50 million Mm dollars so they don't actually care Mm -hmm. now so they realized essentially that there's this there's no real risk in the markets because you've got the federal reserve acting as a vacuum cleaner just hoovering up everything Mm -hmm. so you can just one of so you can buy things and hold them and they'll appreciate and anybody who's bought anything the last 10 years Ah. but wait but you can do one better you can sell insurance to anyone with holdings in the market because it's free money why would they buy insurance if Because they're worried. Out? They don't know this whole thing with the Federal Reserve and blah, blah, blah. You didn't hear about it five minutes ago. Oh, so you're so selling If you bought 100 stuff. shares okay. of Apple in 2010 mm-hmm. and I came to you and I said, I will insure your shares of Apple. At, you tell me the price. Because I remember 2008 and I remember the right. time bubble and I'm, I'm worried even right. though it's Apple. So this, however this was done, because there were four or five different vehicles to do this, okay. it's called sell volatility insurance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sell you insurance on wild price swings. Which is a, a great way of naming it too. Well, yeah. Well, there is a, a measure of volatility in the market, which is sold on the Chicago yeah. Board of Options yeah. that you can trade. So most people were going what's known as short vol. They were basically betting on volatility to go down. I'm going to start selling people entropy insurance. (laughs) You know, you're traveling from a relatively cool climate to a warmer climate, right? You need to watch out for entropy. It could have bad effects on your health. Buy entropy insurance. Good luck. Anyway, just to to finish with with the point, and I'll bring it out. So one day... Mm -hmm. It turns out that inflation had crept in thanks to the tax cuts. Trump's tax cuts. Trump's tax cuts put so much money onto companies' balance sheets that they just (laughs) gave some to their employees. Sounds good. Wages went up. 
measure number one of inflation. Wages wages go, go up. up. But so everybody actually stopped. went up. Right. So everybody <laughs> stopped and went, wait a minute. Oh, no. Hold, what, what, hold on. Hmm. If inflation's going up, what are we going to do with the Fed, with, with, with bonds? Mm-hmm. So because everybody... bond rates are really low. So when the next treasury uh, uh, bidding process began, the rates crept up by an actually significant amount. And everybody stopped and went, oh, my God, bond, yield, bond rates are going up. That means yields are going down. That means everything's broken. We don't know what's going anymore. And panic selling ensued on the day after mm. this treasury uh, auction. Okay. Which meant volatility went through the roof. Ah, because that's what volatility And blew up measures. everybody wow. in one day. Wow. There was a guy who was a manager in a Target in Florida and booked millions of dollars of profits selling volatility insurance for the last five years. And wow. he lost all his money oh. in four hours. Oh. Yeah. That's... Four hours. Oh. This serves him right. He was literally picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Um, because, and here's my point, mm. you're relying on the status quo mm-hmm. without knowing anything because your framework, his framework, he came to the market in mm-hmm. 2010, 2011, whatever it was, right? So all he knows is this is how things work. Mm-hmm. He never stopped to think anything outside of that. If I would have gone over to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, uh, excuse me, you do know that one day there will be volatility, right? Mm-hmm. And his response would have been something along the lines of, yeah, maybe, but no, because of all those things I just described a moment ago. You have the, the Fed and, and they're going to taper things slowly, so you're going to know when to get out. And, and he would have been totally right, minus he didn't know what he didn't know. This is almost, this reminds me of uh, Francis Fukuyama mm-hmm. at the end of history. Yeah. Like, okay, so America is now the remaining superpower. So volatility in the world has gone down. And history is now going to be a pretty boring place. It's liberal democracy all the way out. And, uh, you know, clear sailing for hundreds of years. Just to show you how accurate your comparison is, that uh, the short volatility. No one has a defense budget anymore in Europe. Right. Because, well, America's going to defend us. Right, right. And they were right up until they were wrong, and now they're scrambling because they have no armies, they mm-hmm. have no trained soldiers, yep. they have nothing. And any idiot could have seen at some point, you got to mm-hmm. be prepared. Except that's the only world they ever knew. And Nassim Taleb, he does it the other way around, right? He bets on radical changes in the market. Yes and no. Eventually happens. He no? he simply bets on long tails. Okay. On things that have a minute chance of occurring, but it can be anything. So if mm-hmm. you have a stock that trades at a hundred dollars, so to buy options that it'll either be worth, let's say, five hundred dollars or one dollar mm-hmm. in six months from now is very cheap because no okay. one thinks it's actually going to happen. Ah. That's what he does. And when it hits. And the it's so enough. he loses money for, you know, 6 7 years at a time and then when something like <laughs> last week happens, he's a very rich man. Makes it all back plus. At any rate, so but that's the thing. These traders are working with the framework that they know. 
That's all they know. They couldn't possibly hear anything. The, the guys who spend their time writing these blogs and these Twitter accounts and this and that about, oh, my God, you people are crazy. Uh, they just look at them like they're weird. You don't know what you're talking about. They get made fun of for six, mm-hmm. seven years. When I started telling my friends who worked in, in finance that the market quit making sense to me a year ago, they just told me, ah, you're stupid. You don't get it. You don't understand. No, no, no. You're missing out. Oh, the Dow. The Dow is like Trump. Right? The Dow is up. Ah. And then I ha- I had to, I have to admit, it was wonderful. I went back to the Dow's down 1,000 points. Right? <laughs> Dow's down 1,000 points. Who didn't get it? Who didn't get it? And by the way, one of them turned around and said, you might be right. But let's say I jump out now. I'm up X amount since when you first said something. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Timing is a big part of it. Fine. We're not, it's not a financial podcast. The point is about frameworks. So that guy's framework of volatility fits into that guy's framework of markets, which fits into that guy's framework of finance, which fits into that guy's framework of money. Yes, there are multiple frameworks that we have. They're nested frameworks. But mm-hmm. what I think is a fact... That all things must come to an end. That there are too many variables for anyone to ever think they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Two facts. He would not agree. That's not a fact. Now, I can point to history and show him all the times that everything went to hell because people forgot those two simple stupid facts. Mm-hmm. But they just don't fit into his his worldview. And so to him... That's an example of an alternative factor. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So to those people, these are simply non Fact. So you mentioned Talib, right? Mm-hmm. So Nassim Talib has his 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 big point is you don't know what you don't know. So stop thinking that you know. Mm-hmm. That yeah, congratulations, I've saved you from reading four of his books. Now you should read them anyways. They're wonderful. But right, his the way he does it actually because it's actually wonderful. Example is, is he calls his first book the Black Swan. Mm-hmm. Thousands, hundreds of years they believe there's no such thing as a black swan because no one saw one mm-hmm. until one day they did. Mm-hmm. His point is you can't intuit anything. It's very similar to Popper. Just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Just because you don't think something can happen doesn't mean that it won't. Right. So don't when you're especially he does he came to it as a trader. So if you're gonna sit there and try to make money off of equities, don't think that it can't blow up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Always plan on a blow up because at some point it might mm-hmm. or it will. Mm-hmm. But here's the funny thing. Everybody always has an alternative explanation for why there was a for blow-up. why there was a so it oh, there shouldn't have been a blow up. It just happened. Everybody panicked. Of, That's all it was. People panicked because the market's you know, coming right yeah, back. Yeah, it's just come back. Yeah. I I got text messages in, in 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 WhatsApp groups from people in old friends that you know my old yeshiva has this giant group and one guy's like guys now's the time. You can buy stocks at a discount because of the recent downturn. Get in now. Everything's going to go right back up. There's so much money to be made. Look at this stock. Even though the market's down 10%, it's still up 5% for the year, and it's still up 50% since then. And I I, stop, I, I don't I almost never comment in this group. Mm-hmm. I was like, don't you think that if things are falling, they might continue? Mm-hmm. And don't you think... That if things are falling and yet this thing is still up by such a ridiculous amount, it that might, might it might still be overvalued. Down. Yeah. No, what do you mean? They just, they just they just go up. They just go up. I said, well, if they keep going up, then your dollar is worth less. What goes down must come up. 
That's how they see it, <laughs> right? No, but it, that I, I in in my financial uh, Twitter account, I, I wrote that today mm-hmm. about a year ago. I stopped seeing gravity in the market, so I, I stopped. Hmm. It happens to be I got this one right. I sold off most of my holdings at the end of January. I was more or less perfectly positioned for what happened. I'm not going to say, oh, I knew exactly what was going to I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but I knew something had to happen. You're that hired to be as your financial consultant. You can't. Oh. I'm not licensed. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Just. I'm sure we can come to some other kind of arrangement. But... <laughs> no, I'm serious. But as a financial advisor, that's a, that's a legal term. Uh, I yes. cannot be one. I said consultant. You can hire me as a consultant. I think the financial word would give people problems. As a money consultant. Yeah, whatever. The point is, I'm not saying... No, but that's the point. I'm not saying they're going, oh, look at me. I got it right. Mm-hmm. It's not that I got it right. I just looked at it and I said, there's no gravity. And gravity is a law. Things have to come down eventually. Mm-hmm. The other option is that the dollar continues to devalue. You know how I came to this? Just to point it out was that I stopped when I watched the, the, the market go flying when Trump went into office. I happen to live overseas, but I work. I, I, I deal in dollars, mm-hmm. and I started noticing that the exchange rate was getting worse for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, "So the dollar's falling, right? So how much of these gains are real gains, and how much of it, if you adjust for the uh, exchange rate?" So because of your ex- your experience of currency sets you up to see something that other people aren't necessarily seeing, right? Mm-hmm. So I stopped and I said, "These aren't as wild gains as they seem." By the way, that's part of the point. If interest rates go up, then the dollar appreciates. And if the dollar appreciates, then these stocks aren't worth what we're saying they're worth because the currency that they're worth it in is now worth more itself. Hold on. I've had like I'm starting to max out on the financial stuff. No worries. We'll drop it. I want to go back to alternative facts because what you brought as an example of an alternative fact to me sounds like an alternative theory. If we're dealing with alternative facts, it's like, listen, you know, I measured this and it says two and you say, well, I measured it and it says four. And then rather than us saying, well, how about we do a measurement which will, you know, take care of any problems in either of our methods so we can come to a true measurement. Instead, you... we just say, well, I'm sticking with two and you say, oh, I'm sticking with well, four. Well, no, but the reason I'm suggesting that the rubrics that you're using for measurement are these frameworks that you have. For sure. So, but if usually when you're measuring something in science, you can reconcile those frameworks. Like maybe I used one method of recording neural activity and you used, I'm doing, you know, I stuck an electrode in the rat brain and you did an fMRI on the rat or whatever it is, right? But that's only true for empirical things. Well, but we've been talking about empirical things the whole time. Not at all. This no? We started with why a social justice warrior movement, and that's a bit of an epithet in their eyes. But this, but why is, the this social... is my argument before, that they're building a religion about something. When they, they don't could need to. Just, yeah, they could just And my answer to you checking. is, but they would still need to. Because whatever, they, it's not empirical. People's experiences of life are not empirical. What's your measurement that we're all going to agree on? The the Zucker Panzer uh, internal pain scale. Okay, that's a really good point. So you can construct a framework around things that are measurable, or maybe you can choose to construct a framework around things that cannot be falsified, and then 
Maybe those are not just different frameworks, but frameworks of different types. But eventually you will reach a level of framework of the second type, the type that isn't based on anything empirical. And then anything that is empirical is going to be washed through that filter. Well, I'm not so sure. Why does it have to become not empirical? Let's play a game. Okay. Tell me a fact. I have two hands. You have two hands. What's a hand? A hand is a kind of limb. So then you have more than two kinds. You have more than two limbs. Yes, but... So what's a hand? Well, they're limbs that look like this, and I'll show you a million examples. And if I find something that's called something else that's remarkably similar, but isn't called a hand... Well, you're playing a language game. Ah! No, 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 hold on. Yes! That's exactly right! You're saying that because of language... I mean language game Dafka. We're talking about Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein gave this critique of Plato. So Plato says they're ideals, and um, all chairs participate in the ideal or the idea of a chair, and that's what makes all those different kinds of chairs chairs. So Wittgenstein said, no, it's not like that. It's not that there's some ideal chair and they all participate in that kind of chair. Let's take a different example. Let's think about games. Okay, what do all games have in common? And he contended, they don't really have anything in common. All the things that we call games or understand to be games. You can line them up into some multidimensional spectrum of games so that any Two adjacent games are very similar to each other, say, basketball and soccer. But there's not going to be a lot in common between chess and American football. Correct. Or baseball. And you can come up with things that are further and further away till it becomes very difficult to say that they share in some common essence. Rather, there's this family resemblance. So... You can look at, you know, these two cousins and say, well, they're very close in appearance. Then you look at one of those cousins with one of his cousins who's not related to the first one. And, well, they're very similar, too. But the two on either side are not actually actually family. Right. They aren't even family, but so on and so forth. So. So you're saying and his he calls that a language game. Mm -hmm. We're talking about language games. That's the technical term. here, Right. So you're saying that because of language games, it's impossible to make your framework empirical all the way down. Yes, because words don't mean the same thing to the same people. But that's not a problem if your understanding of your words is also shaped by shaped and refined by experience. The only question empirically Whose experience? Speaking, this is what I'm driving at. So what do you me, mean whose experience? I'll give is you a very good example experience. and now we'll come full circle. Okay. Circle. What I understood the word oppression to be did not begin to touch on mm-hmm. what, shall we say, certain large segments of the world of college campuses would. Well, that's because you're a heterosexual, cisgendered, white, well, light-skinned Jewish male. That's what they would say. But that assertion can't be proven or disproven the same way that their assertion that certain things are oppression can't be proven or disproven because ultimately it's subjective and that's just the word they're using to describe it. No, because 
even if your understanding of oppression is dependent upon your experience, we can still say, listen, here's what oppression looks like from this perspective. And we could say, well, here's what oppression looks like from this perspective. And then we can have a conversation. Yes, but I about, wouldn't agree that that's called oppression. That's fine. Then you can call it oppression one and oppression two to make everybody happy. And then you can look for things that are common and discuss how they're different. And you can come to a better understanding of what oppression is. That might be possible, but as you know very well, it isn't currently. Ah, and that's the crux of the matter, I think. Yes. Why does the dialogue break down? Why does it become impossible to have conversations? So I want to take the credit for that. Oh, you killed it? Nope, but we did. We, who, Jews? Yes. Okay, so now the two Jewish wise guys go on an anti-Semitic tirade? Oh, maybe it's not anti-Semitic if we do it, then it's like Jewish guilt. What I'm referring to is the following. Sartre, at the end of World War II, wrote an essay on anti-Semitism. Well, he was French. One can argue those are synonymous. His girlfriend was not a Potts. Well, one can argue that too is synonymous. <laughs> the, the proper response is which one? <laughs> <laughs> at any rate... He writes the following. Never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge. But they are amusing themselves, for it is their adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly, since he believes in words. The anti-Semites have the right to play. They even like to play with discourse for, by giving ridiculous reasons, they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. They delight in acting in bad faith, since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and disconcert. If you press them too closely, they will abruptly fall silent, loftily indicating, by some phrase, that the time for argument is past. That's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard from him. That's great. But I want to zoom in on that one sentence they are amusing themselves for is their adversary is obliged to use words responsibly since he believes in words mm -hmm. that's the point the minute you hit such a uh way of saying anything then words don't matter definitions don't matter defining doesn't matter distinction doesn't matter and then yes oppression is oppression is oppression i disagree i i don't see how you get to that conclusion if words don't matter. No, but you're treating that like an absolute thing. You're saying, I've gotten to a point in my discourse where we now have a question about definitions. Or we are not, we don't yet have language to fully describe what it is we're talking about. And one side of the argument isn't interested in finding it. Okay, so screw them. That's very simple to say. If you don't care where things end up. Oh, so now you're introducing like a political dimension to the. the Nothing to do question. with politics. Well, what do you mean where it ends up? Do you care about the planet? Yeah. Do you care about what's going to happen to that planet? Of course. Okay. That. What do you mean? Are you saying something about the nature of language or are you saying something about how politics is seriously screwed up today? Neither. Okay. So what are you talking about? I'm saying what I said. Once you have the ability to have discourse with words 
that are not defined and don't need to be by one party, yet carry enough definition to mean something, mm-hmm. then there are no facts. Because everything is post hoc explained using whatever words people want to use. Ah, you're saying, if I've understood you, that the discourse breaks down because at least one side in the discourse is not using language in good faith. And if they're committed or willing to not use language in good faith, then forget about having any empirical framework to refine beliefs by they're stuck in some sort of idolatrous religion because that's all it can be yes language becomes self-referential well that's what this means to me or not referential at all if things flip around fine but the point is you still communicate in language so there's one framework which can no longer be empirical and it happens to hold every other framework and that's language you know sean part of the holy madness community was just remarking to me by facebook that he was trying to have a conversation about i'm not sure exactly what the issue was with a friend of a cousin of his or something like that and um the friend who's part of this sort of regressive left or post-mo left as i like to think of them or relativistic left couldn't engage in the discussion because he just kept f-bombing and sort of being in disbelief of what sean was saying without actually dealing with the substance it's like there's enough language going on that he seems to be a part of the discussion but he can't his discussion actually breaks over the rapids of these f-bombs and he can't sustain language that's the ultimate result as long as that was confined this is parenthetical but as long as that was confined to pockets of a society it didn't matter Mm -hmm. but now they took academia so they get to redefine any word they want holy crap i remember reading judith butler in college And everybody thought, well, it must be really deep and smart because it's really hard to read. And then finally, somebody gave her the award for worst writing in academia. (laughs) And that popped the bubble for me. I was like, oh, I was right. It's just really bad writing. She, of course, objected strenuously. There have been good sports. People who got that award for worst writing in academia who sort of laughed it off. Like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, guys. But but, but here's, here's the point. But now they get to define words. We are on the defensive. Mm. We're going to do an entire podcast on how people of belief, people of faith, okay, have more in common with each other, despite the fact that they have different faiths mm-hmm. in today's world, than people of faith compared to people of none. Yeah, it's amazing. I, mean, I see this every day on Facebook. I watch Catholics and Protestants... Or Protestants and Protestants, different groups that not all that long ago were at each other. They were literally murdering each other for a hundred years. Literally murdering each other. Literally murdering each other. And they can have not just civil discussions, but they feel like kin. They're they're brothers because they both have faith. I've told you this before. My father works in Jewish outreach, 
and every year they get together with the Mormons to compare notes. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, Orthodox Jews have more in common with religious Mormons than they do with secular New Yorkers. I'm not saying a lot, because secular New Yorkers talk half in Yiddish at this point. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder where I fall on that, because I had this discussion one time with Rav Adam Eliel Berkowitz, and he was saying how he once related more to secular Israelis. He's originally from America. He, he was a secular New Yorker, mm -hmm. and he came here to Israel, and he became a rabbi, and just an amazing rabbi. And he uh, said that he used to relate more to secular Israelis and then at some point just felt totally disassociated from them. And even though he's far from uh, uh, Haredi, uh, ultra-Orthodox, mm -hmm. he relates far, far more to them. He feels much more of a connection with them. I don't know if that's still true today, but for me... I don't know if I would feel closer to the Mormon community or to the secular New Yorker. But it wouldn't be over issues of religion. It would be over issues of what do you do with science? So this is the crux of the framework thing that we were discussing. If you're a man, and, and, and I worded it uh, succinctly, mm -hmm. very meduyak. Um, people of faith. For people of faith, that is true faith is not meant to be tested for the purposes of finding result faith is meant to be tested so that you remain true to it that is anti-science it's no accident in today's world that religious people aren't big fans of science people and vice versa oh you're throwing me out of the people of faith community here what I'm saying is people of our stripe aren't really men of faith or men of belief. There's a difference. Hmm. Can, can I at least be a man of faithfulness? That, I think, is your goal. Okay. I would, I would think it's mine. But you're not looking for something that's ultimate truth and therefore you're going to hold on to it with everything you got. Uh, you're looking uh, to find things which we talked about this in our second episode, which you will test against reality mm -hmm. yeah, and refine, and in some instances, throw out. Please show me I'm wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Men of faith don't want to be shown they're wrong. And they'll even construct systems so that they can't be proven wrong. And now we can answer our original question. Hmm. Why is the social justice movement construed on matters of faith as opposed to matters of fact? One of those can be disproven. Hmm. That's what they don't want. Wow, it's a cancer. I mean, I'm not. I'm not That's saying. A, no, hold no, on. Excuse me. I'm not saying that as an <laughs> insult. I'm saying that as a biological analogy. It can be, because I'll tell you the truth. I, I see something quite wonderful in it. This is the first time anybody's actually given a crap about anyone else. Well, there is that. I find, I'll put it like but this. No, because I grew up in a very leftist world where people genuinely cared about other people. And yet... Other people or other individuals? Other, both. They cared about other individuals and they cared about other groups of people. Were they the same? 
Because if I had a dollar for everybody in the community I grew up, that was all about how we have to help the, the, the teenagers at risk that are going to, you know, go off the derech and leave the, the orthodox world, you know, and then they'd, they'd have one that they could actually help and be like, uh, he's, he's just a bum, you know. They'd pay lip oh, service uh-huh. to the, the people, mm-hmm. but it never translated to actually caring about an individual. But when because, it's their son or their cousin or whatever it is. Or the opposite. No, mm-hmm. that's the point. When it was their son, he's just an idiot. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But of course we need to help. And we should... In general. Right. Mm-hmm. But that, so that's why I'm asking. Because mm-hmm. I get the impression that until now, most of these things were lip service to generalities. And, and and I find it amazing that suddenly people are... Look, I'll tell it to you like this. I grew up in America. I lived there for 25 years. There was no issue that I came across that would have gotten me to march in a street. I would have laughed. I find the whole idea of politicking to be hilarious. Who actually cares? So when this candidate comes to wherever, right, and he's stumping for votes, you actually go to meet this guy? That makes a difference to you? That's the world I grew up in. I grew up in a world where people would go out, they would meet the candidates, they would go to protests, yes. they would learn the issues, they would study this. This was their religion because they didn't have anything else. Fine. That was their So I'm, their but I'm saying, but this but is hold on, the hold first on, hold on. time I've seen people go into the street not for generalities, but for people. Do you mean like Ferguson? I, was, I mean, it happens to be it's mostly the immigration issue that I'm seeing this now. Going into the street for Ferguson, specific people? Ferguson, I don't want to touch. That's such a political thing. and I, I, Whatever. But I mean specifically, my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Look, the coverage in the news is different. They're not talking in generalities of how, oh, the poor, whatever. They go, they find these people. Hey, look, here's Jose. He came here when he was two. And now excuse, we just excuse, send him back to Mexico. Me. I, I'm the earnest one here. Excuse me for being cynical. But I have a feeling that picking out those particular people is really a rhetorical technique. It may yet well be for the writer, but that's not the effect it's having on the readers. Most of the people that are... Look, I read those things. I wasn't moved by them. Readers are going to be numb to it. At this point, it is part of the way that the mob is selling itself to itself and that's a different issue i I think you're right about that but that's a different issue my my point is this is the first political issue i've seen come up that seems on some level to be motivated not by any sort of uh paying lip service to something but people genuinely care about individuals I, I may be wrong i'm not saying i'm right i don't know i'm not there i'm not sure how to parse out your individuals versus um categories of individuals thing but i'm telling you i grew up in the liberal world and it was a good place to grow up and people genuinely cared about other people and genuinely did things to help them and genuinely went out of their social bubbles which weren't so bubbleless at the time not like they might be today from what I hear, and interacted with other people. And there were interfaith meetings and things like that. And it wasn't just lip service. It wasn't this ritual of self-flagellation or whatever it is. It was 
like we're curious and we want to learn and we want to grow and we we even though we don't necessarily relate so much to each other we feel like we should be able to we should build bridges we mm-hmm. should do something in that direction because that's the right thing to do because we share our common humanity and somewhere there was a sharp i i it's it's cruel to say a sharp left turn because it's like it's not a left turn. It's like a sharp turn down the precipice into this relativistic, nihilistic viewpoint, which I did in a terrible way at the end of high school, the beginning of college, because that seemed to be the logical perfection of everything that I absorbed from my parents. But um, and, and it might really be that, too. But there, there was this balancing point before it went off the deep end. That's why I relate so much to people like uh, Dave Rubin and that whole chevre that's gathering around him on his show, uh, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, all those people who are essentially liberal people who have been ejected from the left. Now, I'm not a leftist on the Israeli spectrum at all. But <laughs> oh, it means something fairly different. Here. It means something very, very different here. But but I relate very much to the, the classical liberal ideal. And not for the reasons that the people on the far left feel like it has to be that way, but simply because I feel like we need that liberty in order for humans to experiment enough to become fully themselves. It's not that everything is equal, though I used to think that. It's not that everything is equal, all outcomes are equal, everything's relative, blah, 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 nothing has inherent meaning. It's that we need that play of possibilities, like in science, like in evolution, to come to anything better. Yes. So as I was saying a moment ago, you're not really a man of faith. It hurts me that you're saying this, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. But that's the difference. Mm-hmm. You want to be proved wrong so that you can find what's right. Whereas other people already know what's right. And therefore, they can't bear to even discuss something that might prove them wrong. And in fact, wouldn't even have the language to hear it. I'm a mess, right? I, I see all the shortcomings in I see all these shortcomings in my life, all these ways in which I'm lacking, my life is lacking, I'm incapable of this or that or a failure at this or that. And I mean, I can't help but think that that's the case for most people. Maybe I'm especially a screw up compared to most people. (laughs) But like just looking around generally, it seems like most people have some serious problems. I mean, wouldn't you want to be proven wrong to find out like where you're lacking to you know, move forward somehow? I think that most people would say the same thing. But there are certain things that exist outside of that for them. You mean like sacred cows? You can term them that. I mean, look, as much as we like to make ourselves feel good that this is what we do, still keep Shabbos every week. Is there a reason not to? Is there a reason to? That depends which way you look at it. Of course there's a reason to. It's a mitzvah. Great. So now you've just moved the question one step further. And so why do you keep the commandments of an outdated book that we've kind of more or less proven was written by a bunch of people and not by God and blah, blah, blah. You're only just making it one level further. The point I'm... Your answer to that is look at the results. It works. 
that's one of my answers. It's my flippant answer. I'm not interested in talking to the person. You're right. Mm-hmm. But to someone who's really grappling with it, mm-hmm. we know a few. That doesn't answer him. By the way, to your typical Israeli, it doesn't answer it either. Because they get all the benefits with none of the costs. What are the benefits and what are the costs? They have the presence of Shabbat in their lives, whether they keep it or not, because we built the whole country on it. Oh, you mean they can check in or check out as they please? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not really, that's why I said it's a flippant answer. But what I'm saying is even we have limits to what we're willing to test. We do. I, I don't think that's what it is, though. Which mitzvot are you willing to put to the test? I think that's the point, that that's not what mitzvot are. Mitzvot aren't propositions. They aren't statements that are true or false. They are things that you do. They are commandments. Mm -hmm. And the way to use them is to do them. And if you do them, then they can move you forward along a path. Now, if they are not moving you forward along that path, there is something wrong about what you're doing. Now, you can question that methodology. On Wait, no, no, no. Hold on. Listen mm-hmm. to yourself talk. Yeah. Then there's something wrong with what you're doing. Yes. Well, then don't do it. No. Well, there's something wrong with it. Yes. So? So why are you doing it? Why are you throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Ah, so what you meant to say was there's something wrong with how you're doing it, not what you're doing. Sure. Fine. No, there's a huge difference between the two, and I'm highlighting it because most people mm-hmm. don't see their religion in such a light. Well, okay. Hang so, on. Hold on. In principle, I agree with what you're saying. In practice, when people try to say that how I'm doing it is wrong or right, they wind up with very poor answers to that question, and I think it's important to refine that how into a what. But that that's already details of details so go on with what you're saying what i'm saying is you place the blame on yourself not the thing that's the point you have to take responsibility what you're kind of saying is what the zohar says says if you translate the word mitzvah as commandment you're making a mistake Mm -hmm. it's not a commandment it's a suggestion god is saying i suggest you do x y and z it'll be good for you Mm-hmm. And me in the world and whatever, however you want to understand that. Yeah, you don't have to. Like, what, so what if you don't? Well, nothing. You lose out. The world loses out. Whatever. Mm-hmm. But that gives you the freedom, therefore, to then go look at the rest of the world in the exact same way. Ultimately, the question is me, not it. So if somebody attacks the it, if I come to you and I attack mm-hmm. Shabbat, right? So you're you're not sitting there going, this cuts to the core of who I am. It does in a way, but that's not how you're going to respond to it. Well, what would an example attack be? So if I came to you exactly as I said, and like, gosh, you 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 live your life by the rules of this weird book that was put together over a couple hundred years by a couple of desert bra- baked brained uh, uh, people mm-hmm. who you know, frankly, lived at a pretty nasty point in time, and they attributed all this stuff to this weird god that they had, and. You live in a totally modern world. We're, we're beyond that, frankly. And you can be a good person without having to back it up by some weird book. What the hell are you doing? Your response is not necessarily to argue on the merits of the book because you don't take that to be the issue. No, that's not the issue at all. That's my point. Mm-hmm. But to most men of faith, you have now questioned their faith. And so the issue very much does become the book. Oh, so a person of faith, you're saying... Person who has is, givens. 
uh, you've attacked my givens, so therefore I must now defend my givens and show that your givens are wrong. Or just that my givens are right. Okay. What I'm saying is you and I don't have those kinds of givens. Our givens are attack all givens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So therefore, as I keep saying, you're not really a man of faith. Look, I'll put it to you like this. Uh, Tertullian, right? I've always had big issues with Tertullian because he was the guy who said it's absurd and therefore I believe. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Is the same guy, though, Mm -hmm. who sets up this dichotomy between Athens and Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. the city of reason and the city of faith, as if reason and faith are opposites. And does he essentially throw away Athens? Yeah, well, as it goes, I believe, because it is absurd. Well, that's crazy. I mean, that leads to a totally crazy conception of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the city where everything comes together. Ah, hold on. And he's saying, well, get rid of that part over there. But again, that that's the point. So that conception of faith is exactly what I'm describing. Mm-hmm. He's saying, because that threatens me, I have to write it off. That's that's out of it. You can't mm-hmm. question these things. And the more you question it, the more I have faith in it. Because I'm remaining true to the truth. Mm-hmm. Whereas our conception of Jerusalem, and freely admitted, this isn't necessarily shared by all the religious Jews. Mm-hmm. In many ways, we're speaking as individuals. Mm-hmm. We're members of a group of people I think this is the prevailing uh, understanding of it here in Israel. I think on the long term you get it because you see how people change and adapt and develop. And it's not like. Well, yes, it's not necessarily something that everybody would articulate, but practically, this is what we do. Yes. If you see if you take a bird's eye view of the Jewish people, yes, this is a Jewish view. But I'm saying if you stopped a random Jew in the street today, I wouldn't necessarily say this to you. The same way that... Koifer, Koifer! <laughs> heretic. Exactly. But but that's kind of the, the point. We are basically saying what, what people take as faith is absurd. But mm-hmm. those are really people's choices. When you're building your frameworks of belief, of where you put your facts in the puzzle board, mm-hmm. those are your two options. To either be a man to open or these up to be open ended, either these are things which are givens, or I don't have givens. Either it's a matter of what you were terming science in your original question. Science, by the way, in Latin just means knowledge. Fine, that's what you're looking for. You're as I'm saying. Knowledge. So either you are adopting the view of call it popper. Because he's the closest I've seen anyone articulate the idea. Where all you know is what you know isn't. But you don't know what is. You're, you're constantly looking for a better is. Well, there is Maimonides. Yes, but he doesn't... I mean, Popper got it from somewhere. <laughs> he doesn't quite put it in, in those stark terms really either. And the man went on to write 13 principles of, of belief. So what I'm saying is, look... The puzzle board is actually a great example. Some pieces are nailed down by some people, and then things have to fit around those. And some people don't have pieces nailed down, and other people don't have pieces. Hmm. Yeah, it's all the same. Ah, that doesn't matter. It's all relative. Is it 
Right. Nihilism. There's nothing. Right. So some people have their entire board nailed down. You can't talk to them about anything. Some people have some things nailed down, and you'll start to notice as you're, you know, moving pieces in conversation that certain things just don't move. Mm -hmm. And certain people get to a point where they're, you know, those aren't the nails. Yeah, I was having a discussion with my friend Eve Fairbanks, a friend from high school, and we were talking about categories. And this had come out of a discussion of gender, essentially. So Eve suggested that, on the one hand, categorization may be necessary for thinking, social organization, and even living, but on the other hand, we should recognize that categories are arbitrary. And my reply to her was, I don't think categories are arbitrary at all, and that's really important. It's not that our categories should be interpreted as insights into the nature of things as they truly are. Look, we're meat brains. We don't perceive things on the quantum level. We don't necessarily have access to the kind of information you would need in order to define anything in terms of its essence. But they aren't arbitrary in that they are constructed, let's say, in order to enable relationships. I gave a presentation years ago at a conference with Yoram Khazoni, which he had organized. And I was arguing there for a different conception of knowledge than the Platonic conception of justified true belief. And what I was having a hard time articulating was that my idea of knowledge isn't belief-centered. It's not about what you believe. Typically, we think of knowledge in the Western framework as, I have a belief. The belief is either true or false. If the belief is true, I might believe it's true for the right reason, or I might believe that it's true for a wrong reason. But if I believe the right thing for the right reason, then I have knowledge. And what I was suggesting is that beliefs are really not what the knowledge is about, but the beliefs are one element of knowledge. They're a tool of knowledge that enables a kind of relationship. And the relationship, the connection, that's what knowledge really is. And our categories are good categories, are true categories, insofar as they enable those relationships. For me, that's the kind of empirical process that I'm looking for. And that's why this kind of faith that you're talking about leads to this total breakdown. And I mean, you know... No, you're saying it so well. It leads to things being self-referential. You, you know where you see it but in an amazing way? But that's what we were talking way? about before. You know where you see it in an amazing way? You see it where you have people who are stuck in these bubbles of faith or ideology of whatever stripe it is. Mm -hmm. And they go out to express love. And their love is transparently fake. They might believe it's love. They might have all sorts of emotions and whatever. But it's perfectly obvious that they can't actually connect to another person as an other or another anything as an other. They can only connect insofar as they can take that thing and stick it into their framework. Right. And then they can't really relate to that thing at all, which is a very... Look, I, I was actually having this discussion with somebody about just good old relationships. Mm -hmm. That if you have a reason... You know what? It's not me who's saying this. It's It's... Masechet Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Kol ahava shetuliyah b'davar. Oh, beautiful. Sofo lo lehit kayem. Ah, that's fantastic. Any love which is dependent on something 
will not last. The way I said that is you want to experience that. It's very simple. Why'd you marry your spouse? If you can answer me, that's not good. Because whatever that thing was, it'll disappear. She was beautiful. She won't be. She may not be. She was rich. Maybe tomorrow I'll lose it all. She made me feel great. And what happens when she doesn't? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is the thing that people can't really articulate, which is I'm not me without this person. I didn't have that sense. I had the sense that this is a person of Emuna. This is a person I can travel with. Yes. Travel through life with. That, that's journey what, with. That's what I mean. Yeah, I'm yeah. not me mm-hmm. going through life without this person with me. When I was, this is amazing that you're saying it exactly in those terms. Uh, When I was dating my wife, Mm -hmm. we talked all, the way I said it to her was, you know, you know, life's like a Bon Jovi, life's like a highway. I'm, I don't want to drive that road if you're not here in the car with me. Isn't that Melissa Etheridge? I don't know. I thought it was Bon Jovi, no? But they sing it about the same octave. (laughs) How do you like that? We were both wrong. It's Rascal Flatts. There's some Bon Jovi song that's triggering my memory. I'm, but but here's here's the, the most amazing thing of all. Because you can see it both ways. And uh, we love Hillsong United. Or by we, I mean I. You, <laughs> you don't. But I love Hillsong United. And, and they just did this song for some movie. I, I don't even know what it what it was. And the twice in the uh, verses before the chorus, they... Well, I'll do both verses are, hold my heart, don't let it bleed no more. Sometimes forgiveness is like a man at war. God only knows why love is worth the fall. Maybe that's what makes it love. And the second time around, it's hold my heart, don't let it break like fears. Sometimes a moment feels like a thousand years. God only knows why love is drenched in tears. Maybe that's what makes it love. And what's amazing is I've been listening to this song on repeat for a while now. Mm-hmm. I showed it to you last week. Yeah, <laughs> it was playing when you walked in. Yep, yep. And and I find I, I both both sides of it are kind of true. Uh, maybe that is what makes it love. That if you are this is so much who you are and what you're dedicated to. And it is your given. That's what makes it what it is. And on the other hand, I sit there going, if that's all you're left with, (laughs) that's Tertullian. If you're sitting there crying and you have to tell yourself maybe that's what makes it love, it isn't love. You're fooling yourself. Get out. Ah, I see what you're saying. And I really hear both sides. Mm -hmm. And this is really where I think we, we, we can kind of wrap things up i think both of these things are true when you find something that is true that you relate to that Mm -hmm. speaks to you Mm -hmm. not momentarily not um not emotionally not you know the way people often use the phrase oh it speaks to me that doesn't say anything you find something that that touches you as you touch it Mm mm-hmm then that is your given. That's what you found. You walked through life. You went on your road. This is what you found. That That's like, um, 
Levinas in the face. You're confronting a reality that's greater than you. That's the point. That's the only thing you can take as a given to move forward. Yes. But what I want to stress the difference is it's not that it's faith. It's that it's love. Our story, the way we see it as a Jewish people, Mm -hmm. it's a story of love. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with truth. Right. Joshua Mark, a friend on Facebook, just posted about his remark was, there are two places that I found in the Torah where it says don't lie, but nowhere does it say tell the truth. Right. So my quip was, well, it can't tell you to tell the absolute truth because you don't know the absolute truth. And you who can't. does? You no. can't. You're right. a brain. But what you can find is love. And this is so important that we say it with Shema. Mm-hmm. The ultimate declaration. The way people take Shema is the ultimate declaration of faith. And what's ah, the first thing you say? And you shall love to. your God mm-hmm. with all your heart and all your soul and all your essence. Mm-hmm. With your everything. Even the first pasuk. Shema Yisrael, you're speaking to your grandfather. That's how it's explained, yes. Hashem Elokeinu, we have a relationship, this is the point. And, and then... And then you come to Yichud Hashem, you come to Hashem. It's Akai. even more than that, if that's how you want to darshan the thing, the way the Medrash puts it, is Shema Yisrael. You're talking to the man, not to God. Mm-hmm. The guy who's buried in, in Hebron, in saying. Hebron, right. So Yisrael, listen, Hashem Elokeinu, you did this thing, you started this this uh, enterprise, the Jewish enterprise, and we're checking in. We're still in it. And God is our God. Now, I don't know what the hell that means, and I don't know where the hell I am, and I don't know a damn thing about what I'm doing or how I'm supposed to get anywhere, but I do know, Hashem Echad, I do know where I'm supposed to get to, and I'm on my way. So, checking in. And twice a day, you need to check in with him and, and tell him that. That I'm still walking the path that you set us off on. I'm not at the end. I may not even know how to get there. But I'm telling you, and I'm telling myself, obviously, I'm dedicating myself to that path, to this people, to that relationship, as, as you put it. Hmm. But it's a story of love. Mm-hmm. has nothing to do with truth. You can't say that it has nothing to do with truth. Truth is going to be an element of your love. If it's not that, then... I, I don't think it's an accident that most of the destruction wrought on this planet was done so over the search for truth. And that science came as a rebellion against what was up until then the search for truth, and it was a search for relatability and understanding. Well, before it wasn't about a search for truth. It was about an assertion of this is true. And yes. And it very, hap- very often had to do with blood. Well, that's generally where it ended up. That's what I was saying. Well, and the people I'm related to are the people who possess the truth. If you go back far enough in human development, nobody's particularly interested in truth even. It's just, this is my blood. We need our land. We need this. Yeah. Yeah. There's something I'd like to bring in here. This is a beautiful quote that redefines faith. And here, the way that the word faith is used is, I believe, very close to the sense in which Torah uses the word emunah. It's a quote that comes from, of all people, Alan Watts. So he writes, 
Faith is a state of openness or trust. To have faith is like when you trust yourself to the water. You don't grab hold of the water when you swim, because if you do, you will become stiff and tight in the water and sink. You have to relax, and the attitude of faith is the very opposite of clinging and holding on. In other words, a person who is fanatic in matters of religion and clings to certain ideas about the nature of God and the universe becomes a person who has no faith at all. Instead, they are holding tight, but the attitude of faith is to let go and become open to truth, whatever it might turn out to be. That kind of says what we're saying. I never thought we would sum ourselves up with Alan Watts, but here we are. And on that note... Thank you for listening to Holy Madness, the show. And until next time, signing out. Signing out.